0: Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you. I don't know about you, but uh, when I heard part of the pastor appreciation gift was chocolate, I got really excited. You may not have been excited because you weren't given a little bit of chocolate. But uh, that stirred some thoughts in my mind this morning um, that uh, I, I think have a little bit of relevance to us. Uh, I don't know if you've had this fake chocolate stuff. It's just kind of like plastic wax that's put over crackers or cookies or something, and we call it chocolate. Uh, You know, you get those striped cookies. uh, You know what I'm talking about? It's the store brand. I don't even know if there is a real brand of of a certain kind. I guess Keebler would be the name brand. But uh, usually I have like the, the fake generic cookie that has the stripes that are supposed to be chocolate, and I guess it's okay. I guess it has some good taste. I mean, it's better than broccoli most days. But it's not the real chocolate. It's not the real thing. It's not as rich. It's not as full bodies. It's not as awesome as chocolate. And I am beginning to agree with some friends that I don't know if there is a gift that's really great without chocolate attached. My daughter, Caden, uh, loves golden corral and uh, it was her turn to pick where we're going to eat a few weeks ago and she says let's go to golden corral i've seen the commercials they have a chocolate fountain and it's endless you can have as much as you want and it just was amazing to her and so we make our way to golden corral and she quickly was changing her tune about golden corral because not only was there so many things to choose from there were so many more things that dad wanted her to try isn't that right but we came to the chocolate fountain, which was the reason that brought us there, and we all tried it, and Caden said, it's kind of gross. <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter how endless or how much or abundant you have something, if it's not the real thing, if it's not real chocolate, it's just a bunch of phony stuff. And I guess it was okay, and if you really like the chocolate fountain at Golden Corral, I'm sorry. You're weird. I don't know why you'd like that. But the reason I take the time to share that with you tonight is there's a lot of things that can imitate truth. There's a lot of things that can mimic and have some form or shape of family. But tonight, I want us to dive into the richness of God's Word and look at what we can learn from the life of Joseph as we continue in this new series, Joseph and the Average Joe, and find that there is some richness, some fullness to life, and if we get really honest about who we are, honest about who our family is, and the things that we face and we walk through, we'll see that God's Word is not just some kind of religious book that has some Fancy phrases that we can read from time to time that don't have much to do with what we are facing every day. It is thick. It is rich. It is real. There is substance for us. This thought on chocolate, I heard that chocolate is supposed to be good for you in small doses if it's really high in the cocoa or something, I don't know. And so I went to the store and I said, I want to get the purest that I can find and I uh, thought, well, this is going to be really healthy, and it's going to be really good. And so I took that 80 90%, and I brought it home, and I bit into it, and oh, it was nasty. It was bitter. It was real. It was the, the real thing, but it was so potent, I, I couldn't quite understand it. And so that's a little bit of how I felt this morning, trying to cover 10, 13 chapters of any in-depth. It's just so much. We're kind of drinking from a fire hose. It's good, it's true, but what do I do with it? And so over the next six weeks, we're going to pace ourselves together and we're going to walk through the life of Joseph and see what God has for us. I want to encourage you to come as many times as you can in this series because they build one upon another. Take your Bible and turn with me to Genesis chapter 37. This is fair warning. We are going to dive into God's Word. You're going to need your Bible. In fact, if you have your Bible, raise it up. If it's on your phone, that's fine. Good. Raise it up. If you don't have a Bible, you're going to need one. So get close to somebody who has one. Next week, don't forget to bring your Bible. Over these six weeks, we're going to be looking at the incredible Old Testament account of Joseph's life. It could be that before this morning, the only thing that you remembered about Joseph was that he got some kind of multicolored coat. And maybe uh, you thought of Danny Osmond playing him a few decades ago in a long-running Broadway musical. But there's so much that can directly apply to our life, I want us to press in. In fact, Joseph's story is a lot like... The average person or the average Joe if you will and there's so many things over the next few weeks that directly apply to us So this is going to be an extremely practical study together If you're taking notes, I want you to look at that and right there at the front at the top It tells us that Joseph's family Is faced with the same problems that many of us are faced today One of the reasons I think this is so powerful for us, and tonight we're just going to focus, we're just going to key in on the family problems that Joseph was born into and that he dealt with, and these family problems are not totally encompassed by these three things, but you can definitely see these here. One, there was a passive dad. There was a passive father. There was an absent mom, and there were angry children. There's a whole bunch more that we can look at, but when we begin to see these ingredients working together, we begin to see dysfunction take on new forms in Joseph's family. If your family is dealing with any of these issues, we can learn from Joseph's life and how we can see God's solution in our family problems. Now, this is not an attempt to point fingers at any family, but it's about us finding God's solution for our family. Now we're going to hit pause on those notes, and if you have a personality like mine, you want to fill those in, we're not going to come back to those blanks till the very end, okay? And so we're going to need those, but we'll come back to them at the end. But I want you to walk through these passages of Scripture with me and allow the story to unfold and remind us of the truth that God has for us. Beginning at chapter 37, over these 10 chapters, we're going to see in these six weeks how God has allowed... To do some amazing things in Joseph's life By the time the Bible picks up Joseph's story, he's already 17 years old However, unless we understand the dynamics surrounding his birth his early childhood We won't appreciate what's happening during the rest of his life So as we kick this off, let's take a minute to look at his family origin In Genesis chapter 37 verse 3 listen to the insight these verses give to us now Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So one day he gave Joseph a special gift, a beautiful robe. But his brothers hated Joseph because of their father's partiality. They couldn't say a kind word to him. Before we uh, prejudge these brothers, we need to understand some things about their dad. His name was Jacob. Jacob literally means swindler. In modern vernacular, it literally means a con artist. His entire life was characterized by attempts to manipulate people and to try to get something from them. And he passed that deceiving spirit on to his family. Now Jacob, he was a swindler, but he also was a classic example of a passive dad. Of a preoccupied father. I don't want to be too hard on him, but I want to be faithful to the text. And so we're going to see that Joseph's dad, this classic example of a man who failed to properly manage his own family, he was overly concerned with his own image and his agenda. That's Joseph's dad. What about his mother? Keep your finger in chapter 37 and turn back with me a few pages to chapter thirty. Let's look at some of the events surrounding Joseph's birth. Genesis 30, 22-24. Then God remembered Rachel's plight and answered her prayers by giving her a child. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. God has removed my shame, she said, and she named him Joseph. For she said, May the Lord give me yet another son. In those days, it was great shame for a woman to live out her life without giving birth to children it was a disgrace and now Jacob had already married Rachel's older sister Leah now how did that happen let's pause and talk about that and this seems kind of strange I mean he's got more than one wife and and he married her sister well Jacob was kind of wondering how that happened too Jacob left his homeland and he met a man named Laban for whom he went to work for Jacob fell in love with his daughter, Rachel, and in order to marry her, he promised Laban seven years of labor to earn the right to claim Rachel's hand in marriage. But the day of the wedding, Laban switched the girls on him and gave him Leah. You remember the story. Sound unfair? Well, not if you remember that Jacob had deceived people all of his life, and this was just simply payback, almost what he had coming to him. So what was Jacob to do? Well, in the Old Testament, polygamy was socially acceptable. It never was God's first plan, and it caused all kinds of problems that we're going to see in their own family. But let's look at Jacob as he agrees to work seven more years to earn Rachel's hand in marriage, because she was the one that he really loved. During this seven-year period, Leah gives birth to seven children, six boys and one girl named Dinah. You can imagine the competition, the jealousy that rose between a wife who bore Jacob seven children and the wife whom he really loved, whose womb was barren and didn't give him any children. This would make for some tense family dinners. This would make for some strain on the relationships in the family. So Rachel pleads with God to open her womb, to give her a child, and in his time, God answers her prayer. And Joseph is born. Look at this next verse, verse 25 through 26 of Genesis 30. Soon after Joseph was born to Rachel, Jacob said to Laban, I want to go back home. Let me take my wives and children, for I have earned them from you. And let me be on my way. You know I have fully paid for them with my service to you. This new baby given to Jacob was a new lease on life. He wanted to strike out on his own. He wanted to follow his own way. What follows is a series of events where Jacob tries to deceive Laban, still living up to his name as a swindler, a con artist. But remember, Jacob's kids, they're watching this all the time. They're taking in how Dad would deal with problems. They're taking cues from Dad. And as a result, several tragedies Come to his family For example on their way back to Canaan notice what happens to Jacob's daughter Turn with me to chapter 34 as we skip ahead and we see in chapter 34 verse 1 and 2 listen as I read the account One day Dinah Leah's daughter went to visit some of the young women who lived in the area But when the local prince saw her he took her and he raped her This was A tragedy for sure but what was even more tragic is that Jacob the father upon hearing of the news of the rape of his daughter he didn't do anything in response and he just kind of hoped that it would go away it didn't family problems never just go away on their own and because dad did not properly address the situation his sons the boys took the matter into their own hands and they set a trap to deceive this prince once in their trap they murdered him and Not just him, but all the other men in the town. When Jacob heard about what they had done, his concern was not for the violation of his daughter. It wasn't for the murderous acts of his sons. His concern was preoccupied to protect his reputation. What would people think about me in the land? Another tragedy comes when Rachel gives birth to a second son. Turn with me to chapter 35 now, looking at verse 16 and 19. Leaving Bethel, they traveled on towards Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. But Rachel's pains of childbirth began when they were still some distance away. After a very hard delivery, the midwife finally exclaimed, Don't be afraid. You have another son. Rachel was about to die. But with her last breath, she named him Benoni which means son of my sorrow. The baby's father, Jacob, however, called him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Bethlehem. Another tragedy hits this family, and the love of Jacob's life has now died, and to add insult to injury, while he's still grieving the death of his favorite wife, his first love, though his second wife, while he's still grieving, notice what Reuben, the oldest son, does. Verse 22, while he was there, Reuben slept with Billa, his father's concubine, or one of his other wives, and someone told Jacob about it. Again, Jacob never addressed the issue, and we could say, well, we'll give the guy a break. He's grieving. He just lost the love of his life, and, and how is he supposed to respond? But just like his daughter's Injustice where he was passive and didn't do anything about it There's a pattern developing and jacob is silent once again It wasn't that he didn't know his son what he was about in fact at the end of his life. He refers to reuben as uncontrolled as water And he withholds the blessing that's due the oldest son But what i'm wondering is why did jacob not respond when this happened? Where was your parental leadership jacob? When these events shook the core of your family, where were you? It didn't appear that he faced the problems and dealt with them. If he had, maybe he could have been a source of strength and could have brought healing to his family. Instead, his passivity produces great frustration, resentment with his family. And in time, he found himself with an undisciplined, unmanageable family. So by the time that Joseph is introduced in the story that we talked about this morning, the story that we're going to spend the next six weeks looking at together, He is a teenager surrounded by ten bitter, angry, lustful, and deceitful brothers. Maybe one of the reasons Jacob loved Joseph so much was because he was too young to be poisoned by the family problems that didn't have time to take root into his spirit yet. Joseph simply loved and honored his father, and his father reciprocated that. You know, that's what passive fathers often do. They tend to favor the child that's easiest to love, where there's not a lot of resistance, and they just kind of gravitate towards what is easy for them. However, this added to the bitterness of Jacob's other sons. Now, let's go back to chapter 37 where we started, and we went through all that to see the the history of where we find Joseph, and when we pick up in this story that we know very well, there is a family that is full of dysfunction, full of trying to manipulate, full of deceiving, full of lust, full of passivity, not dealing with problems. When Jacob gives this coat of many colors to Joseph, it only fuels the jealousy, and it, it Wages war in the hearts of his other sons against Joseph The original term for this robe implies the garment was something of royalty of a favor So what Jacob is in essence saying is Joseph if you wear this robe, you'll be like royalty You won't have to work as hard as everybody else You won't have to do all the chores of everybody else You get to sit back and and be in charge and be royalty while everybody else does some work This doesn't help the cause of the tension between the brothers. Now let's look at chapter 37, verse 5 through 7 together. Look at it in your Bible. One night, Joseph had a dream and promptly reported the details to his brothers, causing them to hate him even more. Listen to the dream, he announced. We were out in the field tying up bundles of grain, and my bundle stood up, and your bundles all gathered around and bowed low before it. Not too smart for Joseph to share this in this way. He wasn't winning any friends with his brothers. He wasn't patching up the rift that was there. You'd think that after this experience, Joseph would, would get a little bit of social intelligence and, and, and go about it a different way, but that's not what happens. As we read on in verse 9 and 10, Joseph had another dream and told his brothers about it. Listen to this dream, he said. The sun, moon, and eleven stars bowed low before me. This time he told his father as well as his brothers, and his father rebuked him. By now, Jacob's slap On the hand does little to address the problem So the pressure cooker that had been boiling for many many years and resentment that's been building up it now is getting close to exploding verse 12 through 13 Soon after this joseph's brothers went to pasture their father's flocks at shechem When they had been gone for some time jacob said to joseph your brothers are over at shechem with the flocks I'm going to send you to them Joseph says, I'm ready to go. Verse 18, when Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognized him in the distance and made plans to kill him. This morning when we talked about Joseph's brothers being so frustrated with him because he got a coat of many colors and they wanted to kill him, it's almost like a disconnect. Kill somebody over an article of clothing? Kill somebody because they got a gift that you didn't get. Who are these people? What's going on? But this was not the issue. They weren't mad at a coat. They weren't even just mad at Joseph. They had been raised in a family dynamic that had so much dysfunction. It pit one against the other. And they had had enough. And the pressure was building. And they said, let's just get rid of him. Let's kill him. Joseph's brothers saw him coming and they recognized him from a distance. They made plans to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they exclaimed. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into a deep pit. We can tell our father that a wild animal had eaten him, and then we will see what becomes of these dreams that he has. Fortunately, I guess, Reuben, the older brother, steps in and stops the murder. Maybe he feels some sense of responsibility because he's the oldest son But he doesn't do a whole lot of good because he just shifts it from murder to let's just go ahead and throw him in a pit and sell him. So they come up with a plan to sell him off to the traveling caravan that comes by. And then they work up a story to deceive their father. There's that spirit of deceit. There's that manipulation. There's that con artist approach that was handed down from dad to the sons. And they're dealing with problems the same way that they had watched dad deal with them. Now, to this point, i purposely not interrupted the story, the narrative of Joseph, because I wanted us to see how this would flow through Scripture from one crisis to another, from one problem to another. Tons of dysfunction, all kinds of calamity that's going on. You know, this family is kind of left on their own to fend for themselves, to figure it out. They had a father who was passive who didn't deal with it a mother who was gone and no longer there to intervene They were left to fend for themselves It happens all the time in families today Some statistics are as high as close to 40% of children born today or born out of an understanding of traditional wedlock of marriage We wonder why we have Family problems that are coming out our ears when the breakdown of the home is rampant through the church and through the secular society As we look at this for the rest of our time tonight I don't have any particular family in mind, but let me summarize the state of many families even Christian families today There is this preoccupied passive father Whose world is his work? Whose constant attention is achievement Competition, getting ahead, except in the category of being the spiritual leader of his home. There's a modern-day woman who says, they're not going to pass me up. I'm going to make a name for myself. And so she moves ahead just like the father, and she lets the children fend for themselves. Somehow they're going to find their way, but they can't. They won't, and they don't. Jacob's boys, as I shared a moment ago, they're not angry about a coat that was given. Though I'm sure they didn't like that they weren't even upset at Joseph though. They had a rift there It was a family system that was not working It was pit one against the other and this was being played out before their very lives We have families that have been broken From the very core of its system until we deal with it. It will continue to be a place that spews pain and hurt They were angry at their dad For passively sitting by when their family was attacked dad where were you when our sister was raped dad where were you when reuben moved in and 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 had incest with the family where were you jacob you didn't assume a leadership role in the home i wonder how many church families today there are where the wife is forced to take the role as spiritual leader in the home She's the one to toe the line, to help people go to church. She's the one who says we need to have family devotions. A healthy, balanced wife and mother hates to have to assume that role, but she sees a need for it, and if no one else is going to do it, she stands up and says, I am going to lead if no one else will. Men, that is our job. Not to lord over anybody, but to say, I'm going to be the first servant. If it's going to start somewhere, it's going to start with me. Men, if you are a father, this is direct application to us. No matter what situation we find ourselves in, if you are a father, be a dad, stand up, and take the leadership role. Men, if you are not a father... Look to what Scripture tells us of what a man looks like. It's a man who stands up and says, I will be a leader not only in school, not only in the workplace, not only in the community. I will lead in my home. I will lead in my family. I will make sure that God is honored in my midst. God has called us. It takes a real man to properly lead his family. Friends, Christianity is not for wimps. We've allowed one of the lies of the enemy to bombard us and say, well, it's just kind of a wimpy thing for a man to be religious or to to be a a, a God-fearing husband or father. This is silly. It takes more guts to lead a home biblically than any other way. God is calling us as men to stand up and be leaders. I thank God for the men in our church who get this. They take the spiritual leadership role in their homes seriously. May that tribe increase. However, passivity in this area runs rampant in the homes of our culture, in the church and outside the church. It weakens the church. It destroys a nation. It is Satan's most effective weapon to destroy our family. And men, we must fight off the demon of passivity every day. I don't say this pointing fingers at you. I'm in the trenches with you. It's so much easier for me to try to lead a church and and not look at the nitty-gritty of leading my home, learning to love my wife, learning to lead my family. Men, it starts with us. Dad, there is no promotion. There is no salary more important than learning to love your wife and lead your kids. Mom, there is no recognition of any kind more important than learning to follow the spiritual leadership of your husband and to nurture your children. You think it's tough to teach a toddler how to respond appropriately to authority. Try teaching a rebellious teenager who was never brought up to respect authority. In my days of serving as a youth pastor, I had the challenge of working with students who had never had biblical principles taught in home, and mom and dad dropped them off and say, can you fix them in an hour and a half? And you would take them back to mom and dad and say, you know what? I, I can't undo what you have been doing for hour upon hour. Week upon week, month upon month in the life of your kid. We can partner together. There's hope. There's a way out. But what we're facing here is a pattern of what's been modeled before them. Parents. Passivity in parenting only gives grief delayed. It may be tough to deal with it up front, but if we don't deal with it and we're passive, it is worse later. Start where you are at, no matter the age of your children, but start becoming actively involved in your kid's heart. Listen to their heart. Rebuild the lines of communication. Model character and integrity in relationships. We can learn from Jacob's story how passivity is dangerous, and it destroys the family. I I know we've been waiting a while to come back to those notes, and, and so let's look at those for a moment, and the remainder of our time in the next couple minutes in rapid fire. I want us to see some takeaways from what we've heard. Now, I want to suggest to you this was not a, a mass of words. This is not just reading of a bunch of scripture and just trying to weave it together. This is the real thing. This is the good stuff. This is not fake chocolate. This is not abundant of a, of a fountain of this fake plastic stuff that looks good. This is not a seminar of self-help to, to help you deal with the problems that's coming up at Thanksgiving or Christmas in your family and do these three things and everything's fine. This is the guts the nuts and bolts of what it means to be a Christ follower and when we begin to take Jesus into our families There is hope and there is redemption available right. But we cannot pretend like things don't exist We cannot say well uh, that hasn't touched me We cannot say that there isn't passivity in our home and so we need to head it head on Here's some examples of lessons from Joseph's life that can help us tonight first Got this down. No family is exempt from adversity. I don't care how godly you are, and many of you are very godly, you are not exempt from the adversity because sin has infected our world, our culture, the human race at the deepest level. But the good news is that you can trust God to turn it around into His opportunity. God can turn this adversity into his opportunity. We talked about that this morning. He did it for Joseph, and we'll see in the next couple weeks that he is longing to do it in our life. But God's preferred plan is to do this in a supportive family that's affirming, that's united, that's disciplined. So when adversity hits it, they can pull closer together. If you find yourself in a leadership role in a family, if you're a mom or a dad, this is great news for us. It's not too late to start doing family God's way. And it's it's time to not ignore what's going on and get into the, the nuts and bolts, the guts of what it means to be a godly man or godly woman. Don't miss the dysfunction in your family. Don't sweep it under the rug. Don't pretend like it's not there. Say, God, help us deal with the things that are not right in our family. I had the privilege of growing up in a home with a mom and dad who loved me deeply, who raised me in the things of the Lord. But it didn't take me very long to learn that at grandma and grandpa's house, things were very different. My dad was a God-fearing father who loved me unconditionally, but he was the child of an alcoholic father. And no doubt I could see the scars of alcoholism on dad and how that impacted me. Every family is touched with some level of dysfunction. Some of the things are by our own choice. Some of the things that we are inherited in. But if we hit them head on and we pull together and deal with it, God can strengthen the family. And so when adversity comes, there is a stronghold there. Now there's some here tonight that you're not in a leadership role in your family. You may Not be married. You may not be a father. You may not be a mother. The good news is that God used Joseph to change his family radically. Don't miss what God did through an obedient son. He was arrogant at first. He was all excited about what God told him. And he thought for sure he was just going to be condescending to those around him. But through time, God purified him and chiseled away at the pride and the other stuff. And used him to not only save his family, but to save a nation. A second thought. There is no enemy more subtle than passivity. Family problems don't resolve themselves. They only get worse if left unmanaged. Passivity in parenting builds unresolved guilt and it explodes, leaving devastation in its path. I'm not trying to be overly hard on dads. This is true for moms as well. In fact, this truth is broader than just families. Whenever we are passive and we are not actively obedient in the things of God, devastation is around the corner. Where you find yourself at school, where you find yourself at work, be active in what God is telling you. Sitting back and being passive and just kind of going with the flow of culture will always lead to great problems. But the good news is, I can change by being proactive. I can change the course of action by saying, God, I am going to stand up. I'm going to do what I know you're calling me to do. And though I may be in a long line of dysfunction, it's going to stop with me. Every head of a household needs to hear today, Dad, this won't happen by you reforming your behavior. There's not a chance of you trying harder and making any dent in this. I hope that you don't leave today thinking, well, I'm going to pull myself up by the bootstraps and I'm just going to do more. You will fail every time. The only way this happens is by the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. If you haven't walked through the 201 class experience where we take three wednesday nights to talk about the power of the holy spirit in our life i encourage you to come check that out that's not this wednesday but the following on november 6th looking what it would be for us to be men and women who are led and controlled by the holy spirit it's through the holy spirit's power that we can be the fathers he's called us to be the mothers he's called us to be the sons and daughters that he has called us to be It means dying out to ourself, to our rights, to our agenda, cooperating with God in his plan for our life. Third lesson we see from Joseph's experience and Jacob's challenges in his family. No response is more cruel in a family than jealousy. What would happen if you would let jealousy continue in your family? It would grow. It would fester. It would drive a wedge deeper. And when the trouble reaches your kids or those who are watching you, they will learn that anybody who gets something that I don't get, they're wrong. Moms and dads, your kids have tapes playing in their mind, recording how you talk about other people. How you respond to the adversity or the Good fortune of those around you. They will most likely respond to problems the way you do or worse. Not every time, but most likely they will respond to adversity the way you do or worse. I'm not saying that it has to happen that way. You can break free from that, but statistics tell us they follow what is modeled before them. No response is more cruel than jealousy, but our response can be understanding instead of jealousy. Instead of passing on jealousy and talking bad about one another, what if we would try to understand each other? What if we would seek to gain more appreciation from that person's point of view and try to put ourselves in their shoes and understand what it is that they are feeling or what they are facing? Often it will lead to a better understanding of what is going on. The best way I know to help Understanding grow and and compassion grow for somebody is when we commit to pray for them It's hard to be jealous about somebody or something when we Consistently and fervently lift them up in prayer with an honest and sincere heart. I'm going to be praying for that family member It's hard to stay jealous for them God can begin to change our heart You can't harbor resentment too long with that kind of attitude finally tonight There's no condition that is more unfair than slavery. But my attitude can be liberating. I've talked a lot about family systems and dysfunctions of family and and a challenge to moms and dads, but what do you do if you find yourself and you are not the dad, you are not the mom, or, or you are suffering from your parents, whether they are dead and gone, and it's the lasting memory of the impact they had on your life. All of us in this room at some time can feel like we are imprisoned by our family. We are enslaved to the system that we have grown up in or that we find ourselves in. Joseph and his story will teach us over the next number of weeks that there was freedom, there was liberty in his attitude and how he chose to trust God. In the midst of all this dysfunction, if you thought your family was strange, if you thought your family was messed up, just look at Joseph's life. A dad who had a career of... Being a swindler, a con artist. Who had multiple wives. The one he really loved and the one he got first. The kids who were given to him from his less than favorite wife. And the kids that were given to him from his favorite wife. There's blended families all throughout scripture. There is the richness of this text that gives hope to us. That we don't have to stay stuck in the slavery and the family system we find ourselves being born into. Our attitude and our trust in Jesus can bring freedom and liberate us from that. Joseph Joseph didn't deserve to be enslaved. But God knew where he was. And Joseph knew that God cared for him and was going to see him through. See, eventually those family bills come due, and we'll see in the weeks ahead how his brothers realized that the one that they mocked, the one that they mistreated, the one that they betrayed, the one that they left for dead, would be the one that would save them. Just like Jesus is for us. You can mock him, you can ignore him, you can marginalize him, but it doesn't change the fact that he is the only saving grace for you and your family. Jesus is the answer to our family problems You say well well, Brady I agree with the things that you are saying but my kids are grown and gone It's over for me Don't say that Your role has changed but it is not over Grown kids still need their parents approval and affirmation and advice and affection Grandkids still need their grandparents time and wisdom And we've got to say no to Satan's lie that comes at us and says, it's too late. It's never too late to start doing the right thing for your family. And it can start now. As we look at this truth in Scripture, I want to come back to the fact that God's Word is not artificial. It's authentic. It's real. It's powerful. It's full of examples of how God interacted with real families who had real crisis just like yours and mine. And when the people in Scripture trusted God, the same God who made good on His promise for them is longing to make good on His promise in your life again. I know that most likely an overwhelming majority, if not a unanimous vote by all of us, are trusting God with our life. Many of us have accepted Jesus as our Savior, but are we allowing him to bring freedom to the dysfunction in our family, the one that we have living with us, the one that we have been born into, or the one that we are separated from because of death or fractured pain or whatever it may be. God wants to bring health and freedom to those around us, as we trust Him, as we close tonight, um, I, I want to encourage you. If you have a family member in the room, I want you in a moment to go find them and stand next to them. But before we do, I, I want to share a couple things. My heart in doing this is not to isolate anyone or make anyone feel left out. There are some of you that your family is is thousands of miles away, and you are included in this prayer. And we are going to pray for you as your family is not here with you. There's some that your family has already passed on and and even the thought of a prayer like this can bring pain to you. I want to encourage you that God sees you and he knows right where you are at and he has a lasting impact that he wants to give through you to others who are around and impact their families. But I believe there's power when we pray together with our family, especially those who are right here with us in this room. So if you'll stand with me. And if you have somebody here that you're related to and you're not sitting by, go ahead and find your way to them. Students, if mom and dad is here, find them. If your extended family is not here with you, then then you just stand and represent them together. I want to encourage you to hold the hands of your family members or lock arms together. And as we pray... Don't just listen to me pray. I want to encourage you to take this as an opportunity to lead prayer in your family right now. So if a father figure is there, sir, I want you to take the lead. If the father figure is not here this evening, I want somebody in the family to say, you know what, I'm going to stand up and take the lead. I'm going to open up in prayer, and I'm not trying to make anybody feel uncomfortable, but if we can't pray in a place like this, I don't know if we're ever going to do it, friends. So I'm going to give us some space and time for somebody in that family unit to lead in prayer and asking God to break the chain of dysfunction that may be represented in our family. This is not some kind of hocus-pocus thing. This is real, tangible freedom. Of living in obedience to God's word. Father, I thank you. For the families that are represented in this room. Lord, I first lift up to you right now the man or the woman who is here and their spouse is not with them today. They would give anything to have them by their side. Lord, I pray that you would encourage them, and I pray that you would remind them that they are not alone. They are a part of the Grace Point family, and we need their leadership in our family. And, right. Father, I pray that you'll stir their heart to not ignore dysfunction in the world around them, but to stand strong and to set an example here in the Grace Point family. That's right. I pray for that young man and that young woman who is not married and their family is not here. I pray that you would give them the same tenacity to run hard and fast after you, to not let anyone look down on them, but to set an example here in the Grace Point family and allow this to be an extension of their biological family. And, Father, let them set an example of what it means to trust you with their life. Mm -hmm. Father, I lift up the men and women who are leading in the families in this room. Mm -hmm. So right now, Father, I want to give opportunity for us to just cry out to you and ask you to be in charge of our families again and to break the dysfunction that we have inherited or that we have created in our family. Man or woman, as you're standing with your family right now, don't worry about your vernacular or the phrases. I want you to pray so your family can hear you as you are taking the lead Asking God to be in charge of your family and to break the dysfunction in your family. Take time right now to lead your family in prayer.